Hello, and welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Blake Fischera, and I'm the author of the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, which features in-depth interviews with 14 amazing film music composers who have made significant contributions to the horror genre. It has been quite some time since the last episode of Scored to Death, 2018 to be exact, The reason for that is that all of 2019 was spent working on the sequel to the Score to Death book, which I'm hoping will be released later this year. And I'm very excited about it because the lineup of composers that are featured in it is amazing. But I am equally as excited for today's interview. The interview actually took place back in June of 2019. So I've been sitting on this interview for quite a while. It happened while I was in the middle of working on the book, and I was unable to give it the attention it deserved because I wanted to be able to present it to you, the listeners, the way I felt it should be presented. So the initial manuscript for the new book got handed in, and I started right away working on this audio interview, mixing, mastering, editing, and I'm excited that it's finally done and that you can now hear it. Today's interview is with one of my favorite film music composers of all time, He's composed the scores for some of my favorite films of all time, including some of the most iconic themes in cinematic history. And though this interview is not quite as focused on horror movies as my previous interviews, I hope that you will find it as interesting, informative, and enjoyable as I do. Of course, today we are talking to the great Bill Conti, whose scores include and are not limited to most of the Rocky movies, the Karate Kid movies, the mid-1980s video store horror movie classic Nomads, Masters of the Universe, the movie, the epic critically acclaimed The Right Stuff, and many, many more. So let's not waste any more time, and let's get right to the interview. I would love to start off by talking about your early musical influences. I know that your father and your grandfather were both musicians, and I would feel that unlike maybe other parents and family from... uh, your generation, they were actually pretty supportive of you being a musician. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your early music life as, as a child and then growing up into your formative years. Well, the, you're right. My grandfather and father were, were musicians. And in the beginning, and what that means is everyone had to play. For example, I began with my grandfather who, who taught solfeggio. Okay, that's a a way of reading and, and singing music. And then my father was a, a keyboard, so he was the piano teacher. The organist, he was the organist at the church. And you were required to practice. Everybody had to practice. So when you grow up like that, it's like breathing. It's like you don't think, oh, what do I want to play? Oh, I hear, I like guitars. I want to play. No, no, you were going to do music because this is what everyone did. So you, you didn't do a value judgment of, I don't think I like this, or I do like this. It was something you did. You just did that. Okay, so that works for a while. And uh, then then, then I, I played organ in the church when I was very young. Uh, and then at 13, so, something like that, the family moved to Miami, Florida, from Providence, Rhode Island. And then you got to be 14 years old, and then you did all all kinds of music because everyone did all kinds of music, meaning my father played classical music, and he played jazz music. Why? Well, that's what he did. He played 
He played at night in saloons, but he could play a concert, too. He could actually play. As a matter of fact, in his uh, early years, he did concertize. So he had both of those worlds. So I was exposed to both of those worlds. Everything was normal. And I began playing at night at 14 years old. The, the agreement, of course, is if my grades failed, then I couldn't do that. And then we're talking high school. So the, you, I worked from 9 to 3. So 9 o'clock at night to 3 in the morning. And then this class at uh, 8 o'clock, wherever it was. And if I managed to do that, then I, I could continue. And I did. Everything was fine until that critical moment. Now you're 15, now you're 16, now you're graduating from high school, and it's like, well, what are you going to do now? Well, I'm going to, uh, my agent has booked me into the uh, Fountain Blue Hotel, and then I'm going to, really? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, he said, well, no further education, this is it, meaning your goal in life is to just uh, play the piano in the saloon, and, and you've made it, and here you are, you're 16 years old. Perfect. Well, you can move out of the house, get your own apartment, you know, you have your own car, you, all of these things. Why? Well, because, I mean, this is it. You, you've achieved everything you need. I said, well, maybe, anyway, the point was, maybe you should get more education. Now, maybe not in music. Now, now this was a twist. It was, it was encouraged up to the point where now, now you're graduating high school, and why don't you think about your future? And maybe it's not in music. Well, I, I've been taught uh, nothing but that. Why should I think about other than other than music at this point? So you're right. Everyone was, and everyone encouraged you to be a musician. But there's this little wrinkle at the end of high school that, oh, it's hard life. And what you're telling me now? <laughs> Why did you begin practicing at four years old, five years old? All of them, what, all, what's all this? I mean, I didn't say that, but there, but there was a, a little bit of a dilemma. Anyway, so so it kind of forced me into considering higher education, in quotes, and 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 then I did. Of course, I I, uh, I got a scholarship, and I, and I didn't get it on piano, which is my instrument, or arranging and composing, which I was doing in high school. But I had a teacher who who convinced me that that everyone can get a uh, uh, was applying to get a scholarship on in keyboard. But if you played a double reed instrument, then I could really get you a scholarship, no question about it. So at the end of my senior year, year in high school, I began practicing the bassoon, which is a double reed instrument. The only other one is an oboe. And, uh, and, and I did. I went to Louisiana State University. Well, I had offers. The uh, music director in high school had set me up with offers at the University of Miami, which really meant staying at home. Yeah. And the University of Indiana, and it snows in Indiana. And I remembered snow from Rhode <laughs> Island. I, it wasn't a fond memory. It was like, oh, it snows in Indiana. And Louisiana State. Now, why would you go to Louisiana State? Because it snows in Indiana, and Miami is home. So I left home and did my four years at uh, LSU on a bassoon scholarship. But it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, all the moves in your life are kind of pivotal. And, and that one was for me, too. I heard you uh, once talk about how sitting in the orchestra playing bassoon, like the positioning of where the bassoon is, and how you got to hear the rest of the orchestra really kind of inspired you 
to pursue composing. The woodwinds sit in the center of an orchestra, and if you think that in a normal symphony orchestra, there's 60 strings. There's like a lot of string players all over the place. They go from left to right. But in the middle are the woodwinds. And then the brass behind them, the percussion behind them. And so you get to be, your ears kind of open up to the inner workings of whoever wrote this tune, if it's Beethoven, if it's whatever. You're hearing, oh, my part is doing this, and it's doing this along with this guy, and boy, that's interesting. Of course, if you're not interested in any of that stuff, it's, it's boring. But to me, I thought, I found it very exciting. And, and then I said, I got more into writing rather than the playing. You went on to study at Juilliard, but what I'd like to get a little more into is after Juilliard, you went to Italy for several years. And specifically what I'd love to talk about, about your experience in Italy was meeting the author and playwright Morris West and how uh, an, an exchange with him in some ways changed your life. Yeah. Living in, in Rome, Italy, after the Juilliard experience, and now we're talking the late 60s, and there were two writers, famous writers, living in Rome at the time, Gore Vidal and, and Morris West. Morris West is a, an Australian novelist who wrote Shoes of the Fishman, The Ambassador, many, many novels. The Devil's Advocate. Yeah. Gore Vidal is a, another famous American uh, novelist. And these are the they were called expatriates, but but no one was an ex anything. But but that was the English speaking community that was there, and and I was playing once again in a saloon. And uh, Morris West had children. And he had one boy who was pretty incorrigible and got thrown out of every school in Rome. But he was very bright, and he was interested in music. And and Morris approached me to tutor him uh, in his. A-levels or O-levels, I forget which one is the high school equivalent in the English system, and uh, and my wife to do the academic sub- subjects, and, and I would do music. And, and then that brought us in, in, a, uh, in a close, sort of close, it was a professional relationship. He was uh, paying me for my services and actually challenged me at some point. The, the, the point was around his pool. He was living out the Via Appia next to Gina Lola Bridget and he had a spectacular villa and uh, a chauffeur and a cook and all of those things, a very rich environment. And he says to me one day, well, what do you do? You know, and I go, well, I'm a film composer. And uh, he says, well, do you, you write every day like I do then. He says, I get up every morning at whatever time he says he gets up and then he writes until noon, breaks for lunch, and then after that he writes for another couple of hours. I says, yeah, well, you know, you are a professional writer and uh, you have hits. And and I, uh, to keep alive, what I do is I play in the saloon at night. So I get it in, you know, late, late, late. And I get up midday and I don't write very much. I said, well, he says, it seems to me that you might be living a lie. It probably wasn't the tenderest way to put it, but what do you mean? Uh, by this time, don't forget, I have a bachelor's from Louisiana State in music composition and a bachelor's in, and master's from Juilliard in music composition. And I think that I'm uh, 
eminently qualified. And of course, I was wrong. He was saying, yes, but I write every day. And you don't write every day. You kind of live the truth that you are. You play piano in a saloon every night. And this kind of defines you. And I began, you know, getting a little, I wouldn't say upset, but I felt challenged. I really, he was speaking things that I had never heard before, but it was obviously true. So he went on. He did. He he pressed the issue. He didn't just say, "Well, okay," and then see you later. No, he says, "Look, I um, I, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, become a composer." And he said, "How much do you make?" And I I told him what I made. No, it's nothing. You got to imagine that in those days when they said five dollars a day, we could live in in Europe. Well, I was. I actually was living. Uh, getting paid five dollars a day. So that's not a lot of money. He says, well, I'll give you X amount of money. Forget what it was, which was more than $5 a day per month. And you have an opportunity to quit playing in the saloon and just be a composer. Now, I, who have been living with myself a long time and began playing in the saloon at 14 years old, I got myself to 28 years old, married with two children and doing exactly what I've been doing for a living since I was 14. And he takes out his checkbook and I'm shaking like a leaf. Uh, can't believe that he's, he actually said that. He says, you can never let it be said that you didn't have a chance to become a composer because all you have to do now is write. I'll pay you a bit more than what you're making in that saloon. So that was uh, pretty dramatic stuff in my life. I mean, maybe not in someone else's, but I went home told my wife about that. Then, then my, my part of the deal, I had a trio. So it was a, a jazz trio in discotheque, Roma, nightlife, and it was pretty, I thought, pretty cool. And so I was working with other people, the bass, the drums, and I, and, and I walked in and said, I'm going to quit tonight. And I, I have to tell the owner of the, the club that I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. And I did. I told everybody that I'm quitting and walked away from that life forever. But it was not easy to do. I thought that was one of the hardest things I ever did, uh, at least up until that point in my life. It was a big deal because the guy just put his money. Now, you got to know it wasn't a lot of money. you got to know it wasn't the kind of money that says, oh, I'm rich. No, it was more than you were making. But the, the challenge, I guess at 28... You know, you're looking to be 30 years old, and, and you keep saying, there's a point. Have you been to college? Yes. Okay. When you leave college, it's a big deal. It's not a big deal because you're a diploma. The big deal is, what do I do now? Yeah. Anybody who's going through a higher education situation, even if you say, oh, I want to be this, I want to be that, but the truth is, all that schooling that you did the first 12 years, then you do four years after that, maybe another two. And now it's going to stop. And if you, I mean, you really don't. No one can predict the future. You don't want to be able to predict the However, it's pretty unsettling to say, this is the beginning of the rest of my life. You know, and it happens to everybody. And it, and it certainly happened to me and to meet this guy at this, at this time who challenged me. Because I'd have been playing in a saloon forever. And, I, and believe me, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think his point was uh, uh, was the lie. Yeah. Right. In other words, I don't mind it 
that that you do manual labor for, or, or you, you know what I mean? That's not the point. If you love it, and, and, and this is what you do, so be it. But if you're going around saying, no, no, I, I'm a composer, I write music, I write music, and you don't write music, I mean, come on, how do you... Because that mind at that time thought, well, I thought that that would be pretty uh, sophisticated because I got these degrees, and it was all not true. It just wasn't true. I wasn't doing what I said I, I was doing, so that's a lie. So it was dramatic. I mean, yeah, it's also kind of amazing that it is at that point of your life. You know, obviously you had lived having been playing in saloons since you were a teenager. I mean, I would imagine that you were probably a little more mature than uh, people that didn't live that kind of lifestyle. But by the time you're in your late 20s, it's when you start to realize the ignorance of youth, of thinking, like, I already know everything. That starts to wear off by the time you're 28. <laughs> well, in most cases, now, you've got to know, you've met, like, 50- and 60-year-old guys. They go, man, are you really still back there? <laughs> I, I mean, I have friends like that. I maybe, mean, I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm thinking. Maybe I'm talking about myself more. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't know you enough to say that, but I know people who do. You yeah. know, and, and and I'm going, hmm. Not, it can't be a, a, a pejorative. It can't be a, a value judgment that puts someone down. Yeah. But in my case, it was like, you're right. I have to leave this behind. This is stuff of. Of the of youth, I mean, you can't do this anymore. Yeah, I mean, you you made a point to say that it wasn't a lot of money, but the fact that it was any money is amazing. Yeah, 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 exactly. He what a, what a a guy, right? Who who stepped out and did that to me? To him, it might it might not have been that big a deal, but it, it certainly was that to me. Sure, I mean, it's also like a great stroke of luck that you would meet this guy and be in that place at that right time and that this yeah life... but everybody look you, you take your own life no matter who you are and you look back and and it's a script yeah true it's a script you can now you can't do the future that's why you should never do the future but you look back and you go oh this happened and this happened and this happened and it seems like it's all okay even the bad stuff seems to be part of a, a script yeah you know, you obviously changed your life and, and went on to focus on composing. Did you take the money? And for how long? I took the money. And until he passed, I'm going to say the better part of a year, I think he, he was the son. Uh, Morris's son was to take his exams. In other words, uh, I'm, I'm not going to know exactly, but the be certainly the better part of a year before he was to take his his exams to pass the A or O levels, whatever that were. But in the meantime, you see, not now, now with a new mindset, writing can be done at any time. So all I had to do was teach my part of the day uh, uh, to the son in music, and then I could pursue what does a composer do? Now, there's two things a young composer certainly can do, and, and one of them is arrange. Like you could arrange music because if, if say, if someone at a record company needs a song, now you, no, we're not talking about writing songs because anybody can write a song. Anybody. It just anybody. You don't need to go through all the trainings that I did to write a song. My goodness, no. And, and it, it, a good song can come from anybody, not necessarily a musician. My deal was to get overeducated in, in music 
to not just write a song. Okay. So, so what else can you do? You can do orchestrations. You can, you know, write music for the orchestra for a song. You can ghostwrite for a composer who can't really write music, but he's got the job and he needs someone to help him write the music. So that's what I did. Both those two things. Now, you could also say, I could also write the music for the film, but, but that's the catch 22. You, you have no experience. You know no one. Where do you begin? So you begin on the outside, clawing your way inside. So you do orchestrations for singers. And how do you do that? Well, you advertise the fact that you can actually write music. If you have a ballad and there's strings behind you and there's all kinds of, you know, stuff like that, well, not everybody is qualified to do that. Not everybody. So I'm one of the guys that's qualified. I can raise my hand. I can do that. Sure. So, so oh, and by the way, I'm cheap because I, <laughs> I can't have any presumptions of saying, and because I had a hit last year, you owe me. No, no. I don't have a hit, but I'm really good. I'm credentialed. I, I, you know, I, I can do this stuff. So you, you will look for that shot. That shot is not like saying, give me a shot to have a hit record. No, but you might get on an album. Yeah. <laughs> there might be a hit record that comes, and you're know, just a part of it. You just do the orchestration. And then if there's a film composer who the tradition is the business, is like too much music to write and too little time. So film composers always are looking for a helping hand. Then there's unqualified film composers who need a helping hand. So you raise your hand. Anybody need help out there? I can either write it for you or I can do your orchestration helping for you. I can do all the things. And, and so you, that's how it began. So you begin ghostwriting for some, orchestrating for others. Uh, in Milan is the record company uh, in Italy, and I would be off to Milan to do, I'm doing a record company, a record date. I'm doing an album with a singer that no one ever heard of, but I'm getting, I'm getting paid. I'm getting a minimum, minimum amount of money for work. And, and, and you can, you can make, begin making your connections. Well, I got out of the, uh, the rat race of, of the nightclub because the nightclub is, if it's not nine to three, one of them, when I began, was 12 to 6. Now, 12 to 6 meant midnight Yeah. to 6 in the morning. So it was an after-hours place. So what time are you going to get up? You're not going to get up at noon. Yeah. You're not even going to get to bed until 7. So the last thing in your mind is, is thinking of writing music. I mean, you're not in any condition for that. Sure. Around when was this? Was this the late 60s, early 70s? Correct. Because I left... To come back to the to our country in 1973, so it was prior to that, 68, 69, something like that. So when you were working on films in Italy as either a ghostwriter or an orchestrator, what I mean, the the, the Italian film industry is is interesting to say the least. What kinds of films were you working on? Was this the time of the Spaghetti Westerns? It was the time of the Spaghetti Westerns. And, uh, and one of the ways that, that I could get paid, uh, in addition to, uh, let's say I was either orchestrating or ghostwriting, was I was still uh, a good pianist, so I could be hired to do the session, too. So I'd, I'd be playing on the session, and I would have written some of the music, 
or, or some of the orchestrations. So I was beginning to uh, make a living, uh, barely, but, but I did. How many do you think you did, you worked on? And, and, and like, what were the genres spanned? Do you remember? The genres? Yeah. Do, do you remember a picture called The Garden of Fincy Contini? Of Vittorio De Sica. Yeah, it, it, it might not be names that you would know of. Some some of the films of Rizzo Tolani. He's he's a composer. He wrote a tune called More. You, you're not going to know because of the Italian film industry doesn't necessarily travel. When you do a, a film in Italy in Italian, it stays there. Now there's a couple of times that those movies. That's why I mentioned the Vittorio De Sica, because he had some movies that went international, and and the Garden of Princess Cantini was one of them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there, there were westerns, there were all kinds of stuff, just all kinds of stuff. Good ones, bad ones, just just like America. I mean, there's so many B-movies that we... We don't even put on a resume that we did. Also in Italy, this is where you get hired to be, if I'm not mistaken, the Italian music supervisor for Bloom and Love by Paul Mazursky. Correct. This is what sets the chain reaction that then later, when you come back to the States, you start working on American films, correct? Exactly. I was at the Venice Film Festival with a um, singer who was performing and... uh, her name was Ornella Vanoni, somebody you never heard of. I was working for her, uh, arranging and conducting for her. And her husband, Danilo, was a movie producer. Now, he had this co-production. Now, when I say co-production, it was like they were shooting. The Americans, Bloom and Love, Warner Brothers, was shooting in Venice. So to organize the Italian side of the shoot. Yeah, like the crew members and stuff. Right. He's like like a line producer for them. He said, do you want to come to Venice for about a month and work with these Americans? And I said, sure. And and that's who led to the connection with Mazursky and that movie. And I did spend a month there. And I met, obviously, everybody, all the American side of it. And then at, at some point, I went back to Los Angeles and uh, reconnected with them. My my children who had not seen their grandparents and I took a trip back just to see the grandparents who were in both Miami and in Louisiana where my wife was from and she suggested why don't you go out and see those people that you met in Venice while we're here because you're going to be so bored in Louisiana hanging out here wanted to go out there and check them out. And I did, and I was nosing around. Uh, I saw a session with uh, Lalo Schifrin doing Enter the Dragon, wow. the Bruce Lee movie, and it was, like, incredible, and the amount of proficiency. In other words, uh, the American, our way of doing things is really, in the, let's say, in the film business, I'm not talking about the quality of the product. I'm talking about how does this stuff get put together? Well, if I was working in Italy and Ennio Morricone, who is a great musician, a star, and he's working with, at the same time I'd be working, he would have every great musician in Rome and there's only one set of great musicians in Rome. Yeah. Not two. So you would have the others. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, I mean, you would not have, if NEO was working and you had to work at the same time, you were just simply in trouble. So I come to L.A. and I see uh, Enter the Dragon. They pass out the music. It's a lot less different. They kill it and you go in the booth and it sounds exactly like they played it down there, out there. And you go, wow, that never happened to me. So is that uh, other combinations of things? We came by boat and, and the boat tickets are good for a year. And we came in January, and we're going to someplace in the middle of January. We're going back to Italy at the, at the middle of January. And on a New Year's Eve, Paul Mazursky asked me to come to a New Year's Eve party at his house. And he said, by the way, I'd like you to do the music for Harry and Tonto that I'm going to go shoot. Would you do it? And I told my wife, we can't go back. I can't go back. I have to do a movie here. I have to do at least one movie here. Guy just asked me to do a movie. So a phone call, put everything I own in storage, sell my car, take the dog, and I never went back. Now, I know this is a film that you've talked about a lot, but uh, it happens to be my favorite movie of all time. So I need to talk to you about Rocky. So now in 74, I do Harry and Tonto, and there's a music a uh, film cutter the editor is uh richard halsey is his name he's working on harry and tonto and good relationship he goes on to do another movie at 20th century fox called ww dixie dance kings with burt reynolds and he says uh come on over i want you to meet the, the director the guy's name is john avelson so i went i tempted the music i brought in demos of what I thought the music should be on that movie. And the director liked it. And the editor liked it. And the the, the uh, studio wanted to use Dave Goosen. And they did. And I'm sure Dave did a great job. And then those two people, Havelson and Halsey, went on to do the little Rocky movie. Uh, under $900,000 for the whole movie. And uh, David Shire, married to Talia Shire, the star of that little movie turned down to do the music and another composer they asked to do the music because there was no money. Yeah. There was absolutely no money. It was a $25,000 package deal. Then they remembered me and I, uh, I said I'd do it. And then uh, it all worked out. So uh, for the listeners that might not understand a package deal, basically the, the entire music budget was $25,000. So they give it to you, and you write and produce and hire everybody, and then whatever's left over when all that is done is your fee. Yes. Now, on Harry and Tonto, I made $4,500. That's not a lot of money, even then. But that's what it was. I made $4,500. So we asked for something like $8,000 on Rocky, and they says, no, it's a package deal. You have to pay for everything. The studio, the musicians, the copying, tape, uh, everything. And so I think that's probably why other people turned it down, because they didn't see any way of making uh, better money, especially if they were established and they had a certain fee that they always always got, and now you're not going to get that fee. But um, I did it, and we did one three-hour session, and I made, I think, $16,000 on it. How long from... When you came onto the picture until you were done, was it three weeks? 
I think it was no more than three weeks, yeah. I, there, there wasn't a lot of music in Rocky, no. What was the collaborative relationship with Appleton like? How did he explain to you like what he was looking for? What was those early discussions about the music? What, what were they like? So we had talked about music before on the the WW Dancing Dance King movies, meaning in an abstract way, we talked about music and what it should be for this and that. So we sort of began having a good vibe or uh, a good language between us that we understood each other pretty clearly. And together one night he was playing, uh, uh, John and I had never seen a fight. We never been to a live fight. We, you could see it on television. ABC Sports would, in those days used to uh, uh, have fights. So we, we've seen that, but then he had, he had some visuals at his house. He had some film and uh, some, some slow motion pictures of uh, fighters fighting. And uh, behind it, he had put in the Eroica Symphony of Beethoven. And he says, this is uh, really poetic, right? It's really choreography and, and it's, it's this is a, a classic tale, and this is what that music should be, and sort of, you know, not classical music, but per se, but this is what I feel about music. Because that's the best way. All the words, all abstract words about music just don't mean anything. They mean something, sure they do, but, but to really know what you like, you have to play me a tune. I mean, I, just something out of your playlist, like, what do you like? And he's, oh, that, oh, okay. So to a musician, that's a thousand words. You go, oh, I get it. Now I know what you like. So he's playing Beethoven behind slow motion pictures of fighters. And I said, well, I get it. But it's Philadelphia. And it's contemporary. It's 1975, 76. I said, I'll keep that in mind. And I'll keep in mind that it's contemporary, too. And uh, we would do little demos, not like it's done today, of course, with full synthesizer mock-ups. Um, didn't do that. But I played the piano, plinked around on the piano, put it on a little cassette player, had it transferred to 35-millimeter mag, which runs synchronous with the movie. All that stuff before digital days, you had to do certain things, and then you would play it in the movieola. And, and if the director had an imagination, which they all do, but the, and the music was, I mean, the music was literal in that here is the piano. So if I say it's going to be the strings, then you have to imagine they're the strings. But this is what they're going to be playing. So you have to stretch yourself to imagine that. So you'd work your way through the whole movie. You don't have to, but we did. All those scenes, I played the piano and, and then transferred them. And then John would have a comment. And, uh, and I would listen to what he said. And if it needed to be either redone or corrected in some way, I'd do that. Just one quick step back, just for the people that might not know. I mean, you kind of explained it, but uh, Magstock is, was a magnetic tape that was the same exact size as the 35-millimeter th film, so it was an analog tape. And then when you put them into the Moviola, which was the editing systems at the time, where you're running both picture and sound at the same time, they stick and sync. Yes, and they did that with sprockets. In other words, it didn't freewheel. In the old days, when you had a, a tape recorder, it just goes from, from reel to reel. 
with little motors, but with a, uh, a thing like a moviola, the film has sprockets on the side, little holes where the, where the mechanical things, wheels. Uh, and so that the music has the same little holes in the, in the film met with the magnetic strip with the sprockets on it so that every time you played it, it was in sync. I know that you didn't conduct and record the music to picture, but did you write the music to picture? Oh, absolutely not. So you just knew, like, I need X amount of minutes, and and this is when this happens at, like, minute one, and then at minute two. Well, what happens is, after the film arrives at what they call a fine cut, it begins at an assemblage, meaning everything you ever shot, and they put together all these things, and it's horribly long, and then they have a rough cut, meaning they cut it down to, to even closer to being what the final picture will be. Then they arrive at the fine cut. This is the picture it's going to be. Now, that means that everyone else in post-production, after the shooting, right, will has, has this one thing to look at. There's going to be dialogue, there's going to be effects, and there's going to be music. So they all have to be done to timings. The guy slams the door of the car. That's not the slam of the door that they took when they slammed the door. Some guy in a studio with, with a little piece of tape of a car slammed door cuts it into the same process of, uh, to get it in sync and to get control over the sound. So the effects editor, the dialogue editor, and the music editor are all going to take their timings. They're going to time everything. When does the fire engine start? We don't record fire engines. We see the fire engine, and then that is two minutes, 34 seconds, and so many hundredths of a second it begins because they're making, they're building reels of tape that have that sound on it. So the music editor, when the composer and the director sit in a room all alone with the film and decide the music begins here and ends there. Well, there's footages, there's things to know about the time. It begins here, it ends there. They write it down on a piece of paper. Now, they build a description of that. There's no digital world. You don't put it on your phone and have a time code running at the same time, no. So, so, so there's typewritten sheets to the hundredth of a second. My understanding was back then, Did you? I don't know if you used it for Rocky or for films, but there was also somebody had made a book that would translate beats per minute to frame rates. It's called the Knudsen book. Yeah. Yes, of course. Now, coming from Europe, I didn't know those American systems. We did it with a stopwatch in Europe, but I was forced to learn that on Harry and Tonto uh, by Lionel Newman, who was the head of the department. He said, no, you're going to learn the American system, and, and here's the Knudsen book, and here's a, film, a music editor to teach you how to do that. And I did, they did. So in, in the Rocky movie, you had typewritten sheets. So you had your stopwatch, and you had a typewritten sheet and the Knudsen book. So if somebody gets hit in the face at a certain thing, you could find the beat and the measure to know when that pop happens. So you make a big noise. Yeah, so so you, so you did not have a movieola at your house to edit to. You didn't have a TV with a tape of it because there was no tape. We didn't have any of that stuff. 
Do you remember what the first theme you wrote for Rocky was? He was a loser. So the loser music, da-da-da, da-da. That little plinky tune was the first. It was sad, you know. I mean, it was like he just was a good guy, uh, sort of good guy, had good elements about him, but he was he was definitely a loser. You know, I think it's interesting because, at least for me, and I can only assume that for at least some other people, when isolated from the film, when you're thinking about the film, you think of the score as being this classical orchestral score, and certainly it is classical. But because of what you were talking about earlier, this idea of the streets of Philadelphia, there is also like this non-traditionally classical rhythm section, more of like a, a rock or jazz funk urban <laughs> rhythm section. And that the actual size of the band, when you listen to just the soundtrack, doesn't necessarily sound that big. Do you remember how many players there were? 39. There were 39 players, yes. There were six trumpets because I had to make that sound. You can't make that sound that the little fanfare has and, and the, all the blasty moments were, unless you have more than, you know, I think the minimum was six. So it was kind of expensive to do. And then the strings were um, not big. They were, would be called a classic, not classic in quotes, but that, that period of, um, of Mozart, 12 violins, four violas, and four celli in one bass, then a rhythm section, and then six trumpets, four trombones. How far into the process did, say, the fanfare for Rocky, which is what opens the film? Well, the, the fanfare only began, it, this is, there was a screening to be, be done in in the early days. And not so much for the public, but just for the executives at the studio. So John needed something to just begin it. And how do you begin it? It, beca- it begins in a, a fight scene in a, in a basement someplace, some sleazy fight thing. So he needed to open it for the screening. And he, he, he did this R-O-C-K-Y on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. Just, and he, then he took the camera and he panned from left to right, slowly. Yeah. So the big R came across the screen. So it, in other words, that's how you begin... The screening, we said, this is the movie, this is the name of the movie. And he said, give me just fanfare to do that. And we did. And then when it came time to do the spotting session with the producers, they had a problem with it. They said, how are you going to begin the movie? And he said, well, just like we did at the screening. He says, you can't do that. Well, why not? He said, well, that was just for the screening. You just put R-O-C-K-Y and, and just panned across with your handheld camera. And and you have a fanfare. I mean, it was like that's no way to begin a movie. And 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 Avelson says, "Well, I thought it was pretty good." <laughs> and then the producer says, "No, no, no, no. It, it promises too much. I mean, it's too big." He says, "Well, it's not about big. It's just, I mean, then the movie begins. You know, so it began. It wasn't a fight, but it was like you can't. You surely don't mean this is the way the movie begins." And John says, "Yeah, I think I think it was pretty good." <laughs> So, well, it was like the ending. In other words, they had an ending where where Rocky won. Well, it, 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 and Sly kept saying, "Yeah, but he didn't win. <laughs> we can't. We, 
And, and and the producers, well, we want it covered both ways. We just want to see what it feels like with him winning. So, so at the end, when they said, and the winner is this Rocky, they said, Rocky Balboa. <laughs> oh, no. They did it both ways. But then they settled on the other way. They said, no, okay, well, we'll do it your way. What I love about the way the movie opens, not just that, like this giant title, but the music, it's like, it sounds Olympic or it's like... Well, it promises too much. That's That was their point. This is a little fight movie. I mean, maybe it promises... I mean, too much is, is an opinion. I mean, it is a little fight movie, but I think what... I mean, in my opinion, Rocky is like lightning in a bottle. Everything about that movie... I mean, and I know at the time, you guys weren't thinking of it this way or realized it but i heard somebody once say and i thought it was such a great quote which is like calling rocky a, a boxing movie is like calling gone with the wind a civil war movie <laughs> yeah yeah it's this love story but it's also this movie about perseverance and dignity sure and oh yeah and what your music does is highlight all those things you know in my opinion rocky is one of the most perfect examples of the marriage of picture and and music in film and you know, I was hoping maybe you could talk about how not just the Philadelphia streets sound that you were going for, but also like that the music you gave, you provided for the movie also was enhancing like the dignity of these characters that were living in like a low income urban environment. And you're saying like, look, all this stuff is happening, but these people are like salt of the earth. You know, like we're all Rocky. Yeah, but, but but that's the director. that He says this is a fairy tale. So- a fairy tale is classic in the sense that it can be timeless. It's like a myth. It's uh, it's created. It's a metaphor. Okay, so it's a metaphor for something else. So we don't really care that he's with the grubbiness of the city, the not literate boxer, the you know the simplicity of uh, Paulie, and all all those things are counter to what the metaphor is all about. And 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 what what it's all about, of course, is is a, is human. So it could happen to rich people. It could be Hamlet in the sense that it can happen to the king, or it can happen to the peasant. And that unites us, right? The, the king, the peasants, the humans. You fall in love. You have uh, serious flaws, and on you and you have uh, really wonderful saintly attributes. That's what humanity is. So if he found that in the script, meaning Sly wrote that, whether he knew it or not, and then it's what Avelson articulated, that's what he knew, because at some point the script had, when there was an encounter in the saloon, in the, in the gym, and Rocky takes a swing at some guy and knocks him cold, and Avelson says, no, he wouldn't do that. He just wouldn't do that. He's not that guy, Sly. And and had to talk Sly, and Sly got it. He got the point. He saw that. But the script had that in there. So that 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 John's curating the idea of John not not seeing more into it than what Sly wrote, but he really enhanced the character of this individual and the story by taking it to that level. And that was John, right? He, so he impressed me on that. It's not about street people in Philadelphia. I don't I don't want the music to talk about street people in Philadelphia. This is the heroic symphony of Beethoven. Beethoven wrote it for Napoleon, who he thought at the time, he, he took it back. <laughs> he, he realized that he was wrong, 
but at the time it was it was a heroic symphony so i had to keep i kept that in mind and did my best to keep those ideals now it doesn't matter that that the composer or the artist or the painter has anything in mind it's what the result is so at some point it came together with the movie and made that point i'd like to talk about the track which is on the soundtrack it's called going the distance but it's the track during the fight so the the beginning of the fight starts without any music it's just the sounds of boxing and then at some point there's like this turning point in the fight where wow like rocky might have a chance which then launches into this montage that's passage of time and that's when this track starts Now comes the importance of the producers. So John had filmed 15 rounds of a championship fight. Now, during one of the screenings, as it began, after this real round one, two, three, four, four, <laughs> Erwin Winkler jumps up and says, I'm not going to watch 15 rounds of a fight. He says, round one, round two, montage. Round 14, 15, that's it. So so the montage was funny that the training sequence, which began at a minute and a half, Allison said, give me a minute and a half because I got to do his training sequence in real 10. Okay. Meaning he, he began with the minimum. He says, let me just, just let me see if I can get away with a minute and a half. Because it's a montage is, is what happens in an opera. If it was just with an opera, when they sing an aria, the the narrative stops. The story doesn't go forward in an opera when they, when they start, in most cases, when they sing an aria. So the montage is an aria. It's, we're not going anywhere. We're, we're training. Okay. You, you can train in, in, in three cuts. Look, he hit this, he did that, and he's trained. It's over. So I said, oh, give me a minute and a half. So I give him the minute and a half, and he said, hmm, could be a little longer. Give me another 30 seconds. Hmm. Could be a little longer. Give me another 30 seconds. He's killing me. So so we get to three minutes. All right. So that becomes a song by accident. By accident. Total accident. It's a one and a half minute montage. Now we get to 15 round fights and we got 15 rounds. And the producer says, absolutely not. The people are going to go to sleep. Give me the montage. So it was the same deal. The montage ended up being... Uh, the, the the fight and I don't know how long it was but it was certainly 15 rounds the training sequence you're talking about kind of the construction the building of gonna fly now but in the fight did you do music and then they cut to the music for a montage because sometimes it's easier to have the music ahead of time for something like that well you know what's ideal is that you look at the footage you know the footage and he meaning the, the cutter director listens to the music and he respects the music. And I go, look, this is what happens when I think this happens. And if he is listening, then, then we work together. So, but in both cases, that, that close communication always wins out. I mean, you have to, you actually have to do it close knit. Could I just write the music and then cut to it? That's always better. But if you knew the film that has the possibilities in it, you might say, you might create the music so that you say, here is where I thought this would go, so that, that you can get the perfect, I know what, where the film's going, then the film guy knows 
where the music's going, and you make it all fit. And that's that's exactly the way it happened. I've uh, I've heard you call this cue going the distance a fugue. Could you explain like what a fugue is in, in a general sense? Yeah, well, a fugue, and, and by the the end credits is a fugue too. When uh, the movie's over. which is a recap of the going the distance. So a subject, as in subject and predicate, but a subject in, in musical sense is a figure. Is, let's say, the subject. When the subject is presented in one voice, then it's reiterated in another voice. later on, and then in another voice later on. It's becoming contrapuntal. Contrapuntal is this line of music working against that line of music. But it's in the case of a fugue, the, counter, the, the, the subject begins in one voice. Then the subject begins in another voice in another key. You, as, as the listener, don't realize that. And then the subject comes back in the first key again. So it's a, it's a form of music that is a contrapuntal form. It's something that you would hear in Bach in the Baroque period. write it in any period but i thought the idea of two people fighting each other was like two lines of music fighting against each other it's a little abstract but if it fits the film and it fits the energy of uh, the scene, then um, that's all that matters. In other words, that is a musical form that's been around since the you know, 15, 1600s. Uh, it's my business. It's none of your business. <laughs> but, but go into distance is a fugue. And then, then it comes back again at, at the end title with just the strings very slowly as opposed to the way it was during Going the Distance. So what the end title is saying, this movie is all about that fight. Interesting. Now, during the fight, was there any thought put into this idea of these strings during this savage fight is almost in some ways... I mean, the music is obviously has a lot of momentum, but was there any thought process into like maybe this kind of music is a little bit counterpoint to what's visually occurring? I think the only thing that uh, I would compare it to is a ballet rather than the counterpoint that savagery and something that's sophisticated as a, as a fugue. That's true. That was not my intent. My intent was to think of the choreography of two fighters and the counterpoint of the music rather than, uh, you know, in, in The Godfather, when they're, all the killing is being done, and it's the pretty music, but it's brutal stuff on the screen. That's a counterpoint that was intentional, I think, only in that 
Uh, 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 no, it was the baptism, right? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. The, the, the baptism with life and death. A lot of dying and, and a lot of being born, you know, the, 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 the christening. So the fighting for me was more the fighting of two armies, let's say, that takes strategy. Well, between the two of them, there was a lot of strategy and counterpoint. Not And coincidentally, there was brutality and and some sophistication as a, as a counterpoint, but not not an issue, not the primary one for me. The primary one was the choreography. Now, at the kind of midway point, Rocky goes down, and then Adrian comes out to kind of see what's happening, and then the the melody changes and it launches into. Well, the stakes get the stakes get higher. Yes, of course. He needs the guardian angel. She he needs inspiration. He needs you know. The hero, it goes down and where's Maid Marian? Where's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's all typical stuff. I mean, it's nice. Are you talking about the chorus making that connection? Yes, exactly. You know, I saw Mr. Rob in the Barbican, and, at the, and I didn't know anything. I mean, I read the book, but I didn't know. At, at the end of the first act, when they're raving, waving the flag they're going oh no I know how it ends because if waving the flag is the biggest thing that one can possibly do which it's not it only is the first half then it's got to get spiritual at the end I mean there's no other options so it blew the ending I know know what you're going to do I could walk out right now (laughs) so when she comes I mean she's the this is this is the guardian angel. The human voices come in. She's got that face. I mean, come on. But if you're caught up in the moment, you're not doing these calculations. But if you're the filmmaker, you're calculating it like people have done this from the mystery plays of, you know, the Middle Ages. So go back to Babylon. Man, there's stuff in Babylon. There's hymns to the gods. that Homer has the same things. To, to pull at you, you know what I mean? In other words, humans have been figured out from the beginning. <laughs> it's cheap and dirty. <laughs> it's cheap and dirty. If I'm not mistaken, then the last round kind of happens with no music, and then when the fight's over, it's when that cue called The Final Bell comes in. Huh. Obviously, it's got that beautiful melody that uh, we're already familiar with as a viewer, but the way the rhythm section is going, it does cause, like, it, it creates, like, this kinetic energy of what's happening in the chaos of the ring. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, it just really worked. And you know the story. It ended, the original script and film ended with Rocky losing, and they go out into the parking lot arm in arm. And that's the publicity shot. You see Rocky the fighter, and you see Adrian, and, and they're walking away into the sunset. And I said, that's a terrible ending. I hate this ending. I said, and I brought the tape into John on the piano. I said, this is the way that this film ends. It's got to end in a ring. And this is how it sounds. Boom. Da, 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 da. And then Adrian comes in. I love you. I love you too. Movie's over. Boom. That's it. So when the screening happened and the fight was over, and uh, for the producers, the film went to, to a yellow leader. That's the color of the leader. So we just see the film and the, and the yellow leader is going on. And the, the, and the piano's playing. 
and John jumps up and he says, and then here comes Adrian. We have a close adoration. And then Paulie lifts the rope. She comes in and says, I love you. I love you too. The producer says, well, when are we going to see it? He says, well, we never shot it. <laughs> so we never shot it. We got to shoot it. What? No, we got to shoot it because it, we didn't have that ending now. We didn't have the music at that time. Now we have the music. So they went back and they, and, they, and you know the story. So that the end of Rocky is only a close up. Everything's close. There's Rocky, Adrian, there's Adrian, look, Rocky. There's Paulie lifting up the, the rope. She climbs in the rope. It's an entire empty Olympic auditorium. One handheld camera. The cheapest shoot ever. And uh, they had the music playing in the background. <laughs> it's just terrible. But, it, but it, it worked, yeah. They reshot the ending. And then, of course, you end on that scene with the big Rocky fanfare. <laughs> To the end credits. Yeah. Oh boy, it's over. So this is a circumstance where you, as composer, and the music, and your discussions with the director helped dictate the end of the movie. Well, communicating is always good. Come on, the more talk, the better. Before we change directions, I, I feel like I need to at least acknowledge the fact that the end section of uh, this track, "Going the Distance," which we've been talking about, is something that you reused or, I don't know, recycled, for lack of a better term, from a piece of music that you arranged for the Italian singer Ornella Vononi, who you spoke a little bit about earlier. That song is called E Così Per Non Morore from 1973. an instance where as you're working on the score you're watching the footage and you're hearing this piece of music that you wrote a few years earlier uh i can only think that my my melodic thing runs in always in the same directions you know i reach for certain things that i like and uh i like that a lot and it was mine so i used it now obviously none of you had any idea what Rocky would become. But when you watched it, you know, you said you hadn't seen it in theater, but like when you were working on it and when you had seen it in whatever the last state of the cut was when you saw it, did you like it? Like, what did you think of it? Oh, that's always a tough one because there's done too many movies where everyone puts in a total effort. And the ultimate criteria for this kind of stuff is, is it successful? Uh, not, I did uh, a couple of movies where I put as much effort in and the response is always more important because the satisfaction that you get, if you put in everything, is, is uh, the, the walk away is always the same. The Right Stuff was a movie that uh, I thought was a really good movie and nobody went to see it. I did a movie called uh, Blood In and Blood Out, but it was renamed something else. Taylor Hackford movie, put a lot of effort in. I don't know that anybody went to see it. Everybody went to see Rocky, and we put in a lot of effort. 
So it always feels good when people like it. My God, you know, that's what it's all about. Uh, but putting the effort in and doing a, your best job is is a personal criteria. So the added buzz is that people liked it. You know, I mean, but did you like it? It was okay. I, I arrived at the big moment. There weren't very many. There's not that much music. Now, does quantity matter to me? That I mean, I should have written an hour's worth of music. No, not necessarily. But it wasn't that big a score. I just had the big moments covered. <clears throat> I did real good on the big moments. And in some ways, having less music makes the cues you did write kind of more important. Well, you know, you just said that about the ending of this one. Do you realize how slow it was up until the tenth reel? Yeah. But, but if you were still sitting in the in there in the room and during the tenth reel, then we had you, man. You were caught up in a love story. You didn't realize it was about to get really violent. <laughs> yeah. But but you were in a love story through 10 reels and you go, Oh my goodness, how can you do this? And then because the training began in the 10th reel and it began ramping up and it's only a 12 reeler. So 10, 11, 12, then you're going home. But the payoff was there. He got the girl. So he got the girl. He, he did these little mini goals. He didn't went the distance. I mean, all that stuff. And you boom here, right between the eyes. You audience, you, you know, take this. But they didn't have to. I mean, it's a fickle thing that uh, the public, the times have to be right, you know, uh, in, in, a, in the macro. It's like not in that room that day with those people. No, in this country at that time, right? Because to be a hit, you have to be not just in that room. You've got to be around the country. Now, I was, I'm always kind of curious about, like, the business end of things. You know, not only was the movie successful, but the music itself has become iconic and is, you know, used in parodies and used in commercials. And of course, gonna fly now became a hit. Like I'm just, you, you know, I would imagine because you're a hired gun, you don't own the publishing, but when all is said and done, obviously I'm not asking for a figure, but did Rocky help supplement your income a lot? Like, was there more than just what was left over from the $25,000 package? Well, now you, you, you know, you know, there was, I think the, the more important thing, Look, a hit gives you some bucks. There's no doubt. No one's going to deny that. All right, so it was a hit, and there were some bucks. And the more important thing is that it gave you a career. It gave you identity. All of a sudden, you're on the map. You weren't on the map. Now you're on the map. Now can you string together a career? And that's important because you could be a one-hit wonder. You know those bands that come out, they have a hit, and they're gone. And they spent all the money on rolls and, and, and dope, and they're broke. Well, I, I went on to have a career. I had more, I had another hit, for sure. You also came back for the sequels. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about coming back for, for a sequel of a successful movie, so now I would imagine the budgets get bigger. Oh, it, it's terrible. It's, it's just not, it's not the same anymore. Yeah, we had a little bit, little bitty orchestra package deal on the first one, and then the next one, everybody's rich, and we spent a lot of money, and not as challenging at all for the composer because I wanted to do something different. And he says, "You can't, you can't. You have to do what you did before." Now, how exciting is that? Well, it's a compliment, but it, that's just doing business then. But you did write some new cues for Rocky too, like Redemption. You do. You write some new. Sure. You do some new stuff. It's it's okay, but it's not as exciting 
it, that doesn't mean the level of what you do is, is less, but it's like there's nothing to discover, you know. The big fight is going to be the big fight. And the sounds have to be the same. You have to, the language you created. In the beginning, when you don't have a language, you it's like a science fiction. You have to create a language. Like the rocky sound is the rocky sound. I think that people have even tried to go away from it. Then they have to come back to it. I, I know that happened on four, and I know that happened on Creed. That any time they tried to go away from it, uh, the body rejected it like a transplant. And they said, "No, we have to go back to that." It's amazing how much your music became a part of it, and that you know when in, even in Creed, which I enjoy, I like the score a lot for Creed. But when the moments where your music comes back, it's like you know, Pavlov's dogs or something. It's like, you know, there's, there's sense memory, even though it's not Rocky in the ring, you, you feel that way about it. James Bond is like that. You can't, if you don't use a Bond theme, so why, why, why do you have a Bond theme? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so a thousand guys have different, done James Bond and they've all done them well, but you got to use those tunes. Yeah, and you should use those films. One of the films I would love to talk about because another score that I absolutely adore of yours is Karate Kid. What I find interesting about Karate Kid is, you know, at least for me as a viewer, when I think about Karate Kid, the music I think about is Miyagi's music. Which is very organic and orchestral. But you wrote themes for everybody in this movie. And so, like, the Cobra Kai themes are more contemporary of the time. And even Daniel themes, which aren't the Miyagi themes, they show up in various different styles in different ways throughout that film. Miyagi's stuff and the themes that accompany the scenes that all happen at Miyagi's house are very different and really stand out. The language that you have to create is something that is a challenge and it's the set design, it's the costumes, it's like, like you have to create something that sounds like the Karate Kid movie. Not that there's going to be four of them or, or, or there's going to be any more than one, but for that two hours in the theater, you have to create something that you would hope would be unique to that film. That's the goal, anyway. And there was, there was a guy appearing at the Ambassador Auditorium, and he was on TV every night trying to sell his records. His name was Zamfir, and he played the panpipes. Those panpipes are kind of unique. I, I can't tell you what country you would want to associate them with, but I thought I wanted to associate that with Mr. Miyagi in Japan, right? And he had these dates that he's going to be in town when I was doing the Karate Kid score. So I got in touch with his people. Or would he do a session on this day you know, during his time in L.A.? And the answer was yes. Not, yes, of course. And of course, does he read? Can you read music? I don't know anything about the guy. Except I like the sound. The sound was good. So he did. He showed up, and I had planned for the panpipes and my Puccini-like roots of uh, 
Italian opera. And if an Italian can write Madame Butterfly about a Chinese girl that killed herself, and he'd never been to Japan, and the music has nothing to do with Japan, except we think it is. And Miklos Rocha, who wrote all those Roman things in the 50s, and he'd never been alive in ancient Rome. And he just said, look, let me. this is what I think it sounds like. Well, it didn't sound like that at all, but we thought it did. You know, he made that, he makes that statement. So I'm saying Sam Fear is Japanese <laughs> and it sounds like this. Yeah. So he comes in, he does it. We all kind of liked it. Oh yeah, cool. Sounds cool. It was unique to the picture, I thought at the time. Anyway, not, I'm not the first one that ever used pan pipes, but I certainly used them in that picture. And then an amazing thing happened in electronic music. Sampling came. Sampling is when you play a sound and, and record it, and then you can actually duplicate it because you can do that on your phone. <laughs> but in those days, sampling was a big deal. So we're doing Karate Kid 2, and I said, well, Zamfir is, going, is around the world somewhere. Don't even know where he is. So we just sampled all the tapes we had of Zamfir. So we did too, and it wasn't Zamfir, but it was a synthesizer sounding like Zamfir. And uh, he got mad. <laughs> he says, what are you? I said, I couldn't find you, you fool. I, <laughs> I don't need to sample your music. I, but, but where are you? You know, he's some Romanian guy. lives in Paris. I don't know. He, but he lives on the road. He's doing concerts and things. So in Karate Kid 3, we had him come back. And says, well, I, mean, I only want you. So he was a part of that sound. So once again, you had to do the same thing. This is going to happen. That tune's going to play. Wagnerian operas are set, set up like that. You go to the ring, everyone has this, a, a little snippet, a little motif. The guy, Elf comes on, he plays the tune. The other guy comes on, he plays the tune. So once you get them established, you can't go away or you'd be telling a lie. I mean, you know, this is, Miyagi gives a funny look. This is what happens when he does that. So it was no mystery, but, but again, people liked the first Karate Kid. They they thought it was pretty good. So Jerry Weintraub says, we'll do it again. We'll do it until they stop buying tickets. Music in film performs a lot of different functions, uh, one of which, and I think it's a great example in Karate Kid, but it's also a testament to Avildsen. Your music takes a pretty ordinary 1980s coming-of-age teen melodrama and then elevate it to something that's more than that. John always thought he was doing fairy tales. He thought he was doing classic fairy tales. He never lost sight of the fact that he was doing these human problems that everyone has, but there's some trite little story to tell it. And he wanted to elevate it to the point of... Uh, of uh, it, would, it would be more banal. Let's say, <laughs> let's say more banal if he did less. You know, if he didn't elevate it as much as he could, because so was this live stories. His, his story is a little C-spot run, isn't it? Sure, yeah, I guess. A little bit. Yeah. But if you try to keep it up at the highest level, you, you keep it from being uh, a soap opera or melodramatic. It's all melodramatic. The one piece of music I'd like to talk about from Karate Kid specifically is On the Beach. And I guess on the soundtrack, it's called Daniel Sees the Bird. But it's the one piece of music that stands out as not necessarily being of Miyagi or of the world of the Cobra Kai and Daniel. But it's this big, lush 
piece of orchestral music as they're training on the beach and we see Miyagi in the distance doing the crane on the stump. I think it was the nature of it all. Everything else was inside, you know, it's, it's in Miyagi's house, it's in the dojo, it's like, this is this is pretty expansive uh, at the beach, and I probably just went for that big orchestral openness because of the shots more than anything. Everything's a little personal story, right? Like the way you described it, except that just brings in the outside world. The outside world without people. There's no people. It's just a beach, the sea, the sky, and then of course the amazing crane shot, which no one ever heard of. And doesn't exist except in a movie. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. The, the choreographer creates a, a shot that isn't true, right? And he, and he makes it true by just doing it. There's a score that unfortunately has I don't think has ever been released on record or tape or CD or anything, but it's an interesting movie. And most of the composers that I talk to are known for horror movies. So I would love to talk to you a little bit about Nomads from 1986. <laughs> That was uh, Pierce Brosnan's first movie. Yeah, and it was directed by John McTiernan. <laughs> and it was directed by John McTiernan. My gosh, it was. That's right. And written by him as well. Smart. I really like smart. And no one is smarter than John McTiernan. A great guy. A, a really intelligent director. It's my understanding that you were brought onto that project because of the producer, Elliot Kastner. Yes. That doesn't mean that I knew him maybe i'd done another thing for him or something like that but but elliot castner was the producer yes and for some reason i decided to lock myself in a room with ted nugent <laughs> yes i did and a synthesizer it is a very interesting weird movie <laughs> you're being very kind i would love to know like what about it piqued your interest and then what made you decide that you wanted to work with ted nugent on it i i i can't i, I can't explain it I can't explain anything. <laughs> I can't explain anything, including the music, which was done in the studio. Ted, me, a synthesizer, and a mixer named Lee DiCarlo in the funkiest part of town, I, I, which I don't remember where except funky. And when I said to Nugent, I said, be careful when you go out there. He said, be careful. <laughs> He's got guns all over him, of course. <laughs> He's ready to shoot anything that moves. He says, I'll take care of myself. I said, okay. I, I have absolutely no comment. I don't remember a thing. I remember two words from the movie, though. Things collect. That's what the nun said at some point in the movie. Things collect. That's all I remember. That's all I know. I was, I'm innocent. I, was, I didn't do anything. It was weirdest music. It was the weirdest movie. And I'm glad I worked with John on, uh, what did I work with John on? Thomas Crown Affair, you worked with John. Thomas Crown Affair, exactly. And we never spoke about Nomad. No, we never spoke about it. 
what I find interesting about it, and, and maybe as we talk a little bit about it, more of it will kind of come back to you, but it's a unique score in that most of your stuff up until that point was pretty orchestral in nature, and this was a completely electronic score. Yes, it was. It's also my understanding that you approached it pretty differently in that typically when you write a score, you talk to the director and then you go and you physically write something. But this one was more improvisational. And I was wondering if you had any memory or could talk a little bit about approaching a score or specifically this one in that way. So let's say that composing is what the composer comes up with because that's his language, right? He speaks the language of music. He's prepared to do that. Some people can do it uh, through an instrument. And what they're doing is improvising. In other words, if you had a, a, a piece that a painter wanted to paint, he, the subject of his painting isn't necessarily what he's trying to convey in the painting. It's a, a means to the end. The end is his expression. In other words, the guy paints a landscape or a portrait or something like that, a subject. And if you wanted a picture of the subject, you would take a photograph. Now, I'm not saying that before photographs. I'm saying that the photograph is the exact replica of the subject. But when we look at a painting, we really don't care about the subject as a subject. We care about the artist and what the artist is feeling, what he's communicating in this picture. So for you say, it's a story about an apple. It's a picture of an apple. Well, you know, yeah, so what? The still lives of Van Gogh, the portraits of Rubens. I'm trying to make a point that the, the artist is conjuring up stuff inside him and he gets it out. And the medium, if he's a writer, it's his way of writing. A short story of Dostoevsky's is not the same as Borges. These are great writers and... Uh, and it's them that it's that are talking to you. That's the, the artist is talking to you. So improvisation and the, the person coming up with this stuff, in the case of a composer, if he, let's say he plays the guitar, he can go to the guitar and make up stuff, play music. And you say he's composing it. Well, he's composing it in the sense that it's coming from him and he's communicating it. And this is true. But when he sits down and writes it on a piece of paper and commits it to posterity, that's another form of composing. If there was a Homer, he composed the Iliad. Well, he didn't write it down. It was an oral tradition that the Iliad and the Odyssey came down to us. It was never written. But we like to attribute that composition to Homer as Shakespeare wrote it down and we, we have it and it's a medium. So on Nomads, working with an improvisation artist, a Ted Nugent, there's no way. Now, I've worked with uh, a guitarist named Angel Romero, who is a concert artist. And you write a piece of music for Angel and he will play it magnificently as a magnificent musician he is. I worked with a, a guy named Paul Desmond. Paul Desmond was with the Dave Brubeck Ensemble. And Dave Brubeck was, uh, and, and, and Paul was the alto sax player. Well, I did a film with him once and I wrote some music for him. And he says, well, you know, it's been a long time since I've read, can you help me through this? 
Now, this was a man who was a giant in jazz improvisation, but I, because I had a symphony orchestra, he had to be guided in what, go in this direction, go in that direction. And the music read, written down really didn't mean much. So having had that experience with people like that in the past, I didn't want to come in with a bunch of written music for, for an improvisation artist, because you don't do that. That's not what you do. So if he was going to improvise, well, I'm that guy too. I can improvise too. So what are, what are the selections? So it takes maybe a different, it's a different approach because like when I start to write something for a project, I don't let go of it, meaning I don't go to the studio with it until I like it. I write it. The next day I wake up, I hate it. Well, I change it. I write something else. I keep editing and editing and editing, or it comes to me in a blast. I mean, it doesn't, it can come either way. But I have the final approval before it gets to the project, where the director might say, I hate it. And then you have to think of something else. Or he might say, I like it. So the same process going on. We went into a studio on, on Nomads, and there was Ted, myself, a bunch of synths, uh, the picture, an engineer, and you'd play the scene. And because I was the composer and I had probably talked with the director about here we should have music, that it is a collaborative process, so it wasn't really helter-skelter. It's, well, let's do this. Let's try, let's try this. Now, the trying was among ourselves, but when we took the take, meaning that's good, we like it, we can go on, we went on to the next one. But if there was something wrong, Ted says, no, 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 I got to do that again. I didn't like that. Or if I said, no, no, this isn't working for me. So the process was the same, but different. Well, do you remember how you met Ted Nugent? Absolutely not. No, I do not. I, w I would tell you if I did. I find it an odd twist of coincidence that the only two horror-related projects I could think of that are directly horror were Nomads and you did an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and they both starred Adam Ant, which I thought was really weird. Well, no, I don't know that. <laughs> And I, and I don't and I don't believe I ever did a tale to the crypt. <laughs> but I, I I'm not calling you a liar. Well, you, there was a, there was an episode directed by John Frankenheimer. Oh well, I did an, I did another one with him. You're the gun. What was he like? Is it? I mean, he's a director that I. Like, I loved Seconds and a Train Candidate and The Train. Oh, no, he was, he was a real director. Well, how did he convey ideas to you? Like, what was that collaborative relationship like? He was kind of like John Houston. Who you also worked with. Victory, yeah. I think that they were from the school like John Cassavetes. I did Gloria. With John Cassavetes. And they all three were the kind that said, I hired you because I like your music. Go do your music. In other words, there was no meddling. There was no nitpicking. 
picky stuff. I like what you do, and they might make a reference to a movie that I've done to send me in the right direction. But I don't have any intimacy with Frankenheimer or all the other two. You know, I just don't. McTiernan was kind of the same way in that uh, I was afraid of the Michelle Legrand score. The original score for Tom's Crown Affair. Yeah, and I told him about that. And he says, oh, no, oh, no. I'm, I'm not concerned about that movie at all. Just do what you do. If I recall correctly, that score that you end up doing is pretty jazzy, but you also use a lot of pianos on it. Five pianos. And a tap dancer. When I read or, or see interviews with you, you play off those creative decisions. I would love to really know how does that idea come to you? Is it something that you hear in your head? Or is this like, oh, you know, like that hasn't been done before. Let me try that. Well, there's a little combination of that. Like, there's two things that are important in any artistic endeavor. It's got to be interesting and it's got to be well-made. Now, there's not the third thing. There's no other thing. So is it interesting? And, and I guess that becomes a personal question. Is it interesting to you? I, I can't know what's interesting to you, you know, you know what I'm saying? But I know if it's not interesting to me, I shouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, so, so I have to come up with something interesting, and I have to do it really well. Okay. That's not that big a deal. So you might spend all your energy finding something interesting. Because if you don't find something interesting, you failed. And sometimes when you when you watch stuff on TV, you know the guy, girl, whoever's doing it, didn't have enough time to come up with stuff. But they had to fill the page, or in digital land, they had to get it down. You had to do something. And most of the time, a lot of the time, maybe not most of the time, there was not enough time to come up with stuff. Now, if you don't have talent, you can take all the time in the world and you won't come up with stuff. But we're assuming that you have some talent because everybody has some talent. So you have to find something interesting and you got to do it well. And I thought that that would be interesting. I, I never recorded a tap dancer because you can make a guy make taps. In the old days, by the way, the Fred Astaire days and all of that, they didn't record Fred Astaire necessarily. They knew what he did. <clears throat> but in ADR, in dub over, they had a guy that was a, he was like a percussionist, and he made taps with his hands. Yeah, so so I put a tap dancer up, and I mic'd the stage, and I mic'd the thing, the podium he was standing on, and he tapped the little rhythms, and it was like, nobody cared. But I did. I thought it was interesting. And then the pianos was like five pianos. Why not six? Well, I liked five pianos. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That's the way I wanted to. You hear, you hear an Ennio Morricone score? It's always interesting, right? Yeah. There's always something, like, tweaky about that. A Jerry Goldsmith score? Oh, what's that? You know, the little thing. Thomas Newman? There are guys that bank on that. Yeah, but you, you have to come up with something interesting. And if you don't, then the guy failed. Now, or maybe it didn't, it's not interesting to you. But, but, but that's what he's going for. Of all of your films, the scores that stand out 
And I think it's it's why a lot of John Williams's score stand out is melody. Have you seen kind of an evolution and a way of big melodies have changed and maybe been phased out a little bit throughout time? Definitely styles change. So if we talk at the style level, it's accepted. So we have a, a model for the way things go. If it's just style. Now, a little deeper will take us to the three elements of music. So there's melody, rhythm, and harmony, right? So rhythm, harmony, which is more atmospheric. And the beat of the rhythm is certainly percussive. And what is going to denote character? Now, is the beating of the drums going to denote something about character? Is a harmony going, well, yeah, in a horror movie, it's uh, hmm, atmospheric and it's scary. It's tense, the beating of the drums. Oh, it can be scary, maybe. Maybe it could be more or less energetic in the beating of the drums. What's going to make you think that something's noble? The way he beats the drum? The atmosphere? Or the melody? Oh. So character is best described by the melody. What about other traits? What about if you're going to be literally trying to describe feeling of something, emotion, falling in love or hate? You're going to do that with the drums? You're going to do that with the atmosphere? So when people turn away from those kind of descriptions and don't want to talk about that, What's the first thing that goes away? Well, the melody. It's everything is atmospheric or energetic. Now, is that okay? Is that, is that really true what happens in life? Absolutely not. There's a little bit of everything all the time. So in a style way, you don't get a bunch of that now. Or people are saying, I don't want a bunch of that now. It's okay. It's, it's not like a big deal, but it certainly indicates something. I'm not going to be, I'm not the one to, to say what it indicates, but I know what that stuff indicates in music. I've interviewed many composers and I've found that there are generally two types of composers. There are composers that watch the film, read the script, talk to the director and they hear music. And then it almost becomes a dictation process for them. And then there are also composers that sit down at the keyboard or at whatever instrument they choose to explore. And then they improvise for lack of a better word and kind of find the music. Do you fall into one of those categories or is it a combination of both? Well, it's always a combination, but the, the thing that I think is primary is you're a gun for hire. If you don't care what the director wants in his music, then your music might not be there. What I write is only in context of, what does he want? But something like... That has to come from somewhere. Where does that... Do you hear that or do you sit at the piano and write? Yeah, and... but that's the language of music. See, if you don't speak the language of music, then you want to know where it comes from. But if you study music all your life and you make music all your life, of course you hear it. It's been either with you from the beginning or you learned how to do it. Now, you can't have it with you from the beginning uh, unless you're Mozart. So most of us have to learn how to do that. 
And then once you learn how to do that, then you speak that language. This is not a mystery. There is no writer's block. Picasso says you get inspiration when you're painting. If you're not painting, you're not going to get inspiration. So you have to be doing it. You actually have to be doing it all the time. That was my original problem. Right? I was living the lie. I was not a writer. Once you're a writer, that becomes a question that is actually moot. I write music. I speak Italian, and I don't translate from English to Italian when I speak Italian. When I have to do music, it's the same thing. It's not that complicated. I wanted to talk about Masters of the Universe. It was recorded in Berlin. I didn't go. It was 90 minutes of music. I wrote like a beast as fast as I could. It went to Berlin. The tapes came back unmixed, and I took two weeks with a great mixer so I could make whatever they did in Berlin make sense. It was my music. I mean, you know, I sent my music. And it probably went to Berlin because there was a strike or something weird that happened that I didn't go. And the director was the guy who did amusement parks. Gary Goddard. This was his first feature. He had designed amusement parks or something. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that happened to him before or after, but he wanted uh, Star Wars, you know, or whatever those big things were at the time, or something like that. You know, big orchestra, uh, big themes, and too much music. It was just, I don't even remember. What, it was, probably wasn't any good, or if it was good, it was the kind of pure entertainment for, for children, which is fine. I don't have a problem. But there was 90 minutes of music. I don't remember much more than that, though. Is there any professional experience you look back fondly at as maybe one of your favorites? It was uh, during an Academy Award show. I think maybe it was 19 times you conducted the orchestras for the Academy Awards. Right. And Stanley Donan was receiving a Lifetime Oscar. And he wasn't going to talk, but he was going to sing and dance. And he directed Singing in the Rain, right? Oh, no, he's a real, real guy, yeah. But he was, he was old, old, and we rehearsed, and he was, he was pretty good. We were behind a scrim backstage, really, really backstage. Couldn't see him, just on the monitor. And we played the opening. He comes out. He starts singing. Then in the middle, he's got eight bars to dance. And he does this soft shoe, tap dancey thing. And then he's supposed to come back in singing, and he doesn't. And there's 60 musicians playing backstage. Stage. And they all wear one little earpiece so they can hear me. And I have a little microphone. And I don't know what's going to happen next because he missed his entrance. He missed because after he started tap dancing, the audience stood and gave him applause. And he was taking the applause. He was, he was loving it. He was really, really enjoying himself. And I'm burrowing into the monitor. I'm getting my noses into the monitor. And he takes a breath. And I yell to the orchestra, to the microphone, measure 47, now. Boom. I came in exactly where he was coming in back to sing. And no one knew what happened. He ended the song. He, he took a bow and went away. And the orchestra stood up and gave me a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> That I thought was memorable. Yeah, that was memorable. And last question, for an aspiring film composer, is there any bit of advice that you could give them that might help them out? You have to survive. 
you have to be there at the end. It would be nice to be good. It's not necessary. You'll find someone that's good enough. You can pay them, but you have to survive. So, so, so that's the first half. The second half is reality. Your hopes and your dreams have to match reality. You can't have it the other way around. You can't hope that reality is going to change to make your hopes and desires. That's called an illusion. That's not going to happen. So you have to change. That's the back half. Your hopes and your dreams have to match reality. If you're five foot six, you're not going to play for the Lakers. <laughs> if nobody likes your music, you're not going to work. So you have to say, but I want to do it. Like the first part is you have to be a survivor at the end. Yeah, you have to be a survivor, but you have to take in reality. And if nobody wants your music, then you have to either change your music or change that desire to be a film composer. Reality is not going to change. So it's tricky. I, of course, need to thank the great Bill Conti for lending so much of his time to this amazing and enlightening interview. As I warned you at the beginning, the interview didn't focus quite as much on horror movies, but we did talk about Nomads, which is a very unique film. Unfortunately, as far as I know, that score has never been released. But we did talk a little bit about Ted Nugent. And so I'm very excited to announce that on the next episode, I will be talking to Ted Nugent exclusively about his collaboration with Bill Conti on the Nomad score. So the next episode is going to be a bit of a companion piece to this episode. Where Scored to Death podcast is going to go after that, I'm not exactly sure. I don't anticipate that I'm going to be able to post things on as much of a regular basis as I did for 2018 but I'm going to continue to try to bring you really interesting interviews and maybe other types of programming. We'll see what lies in store for Squirt to Death podcast. It's as much of a mystery to me as it is to you. (laughs) But uh, I hope you stick with me. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Of course, check out the amazing scores and soundtracks discussed on today's episode. Please check out our back catalog. Please check out my book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. It's available on Amazon, in ebook and paperback. You can also find it from other book retailers, or you can get it from me directly at scoretodeath.com. Of course, you can also check me out on the podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, which I host with my dear friend, Dion Baia. And I want to thank you for listening and for your support. You can follow me on social media at score to death on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And until next time, stay scary. Mm-hmm.